0: I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Typically, I include announcements at the end of each episode but I realized that not everyone makes it to the end so I wanted to mention this up at the top of the episode have you joined the Restitudio Facebook group if not I have a link to it in the show notes for this episode or it's on the Restitudio Facebook page now we've had a Restitudio Facebook page forever But it doesn't often show up in your timeline on Facebook, those of you who are Facebook users, whereas the group does because of a recent change that uh, Facebook made. And, And the great thing about the group is that anybody can start a new topic, which can help us discuss a whole wide range of issues. So please join if you'd like to see what's going on. I've got a link to it on this episode In the notes, as well as on the existing Facebook page, I have a link to the group pinned to the top. Now, back to the episode. What is the defining title for Jesus of Nazareth? Although he kept it mostly a secret during his ministry, Jesus' role as Messiah was and is the organizing center of his identity. Join me as we work through the Gospels to understand Jesus by his own words and deeds, Here now is Theology Part 10, Jesus the Messiah. We're looking to start to develop a very simple but solid understanding of who Jesus is. And to begin with, I want to cover some vocabulary with you. The, uh, the first is Meshach. That is the Hebrew word that means to anoint or spread a liquid. From this Hebrew word, they just throw a little Y in there. And you get Mashiach. And that means someone who is anointed. An anointed one. The other term we use for that is Messiah or Christ. So, both of these relate to this mashach idea of anointing, because in ancient Israel the practice for making a king began with Samuel, the prophet, going to Saul and pouring oil on his head. And that's the anointing that made Saul the king. Later on, after God had rejected Saul, Samuel went to David and anointed him and made him an anointed one, a Mashiach, a Messiah, a Christ. Does that make sense? Is that new to you? Is that... Okay, good. There are actually three kinds of Reasons why you would anoint somebody, you have the prophet, the priest, and most of all, the king. So, an example of the prophet is in 1 Kings 19, 14 and 17. So, I'll just pull that up. First Kings 19, 14 and 17 says, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars. This is Elijah, and he's talking to God, and he's really upset, and he feels like he's the only one. And then what God says to him is, in verse 15, Go return your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive you shall anoint Hazael to be king of Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphet, of abel mahola you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Lots of anointing going on here, but you can see that he's talking about Hazael, which is going to be, this uh, prophet Elijah is going to anoint him as king. And then also Jehu, he's going to anoint him as king. And then Elisha, or Elisha, if you want to pronounce it more Hebrew kind of way, is going to be anointed as a prophet. And so, this is something that would happen. It's not something that happens frequently in the Bible, but where you could anoint the next prophet. Now, of course, the high priest as well was anointed. In Exodus 30, it says in verse uh, 25, "'You shall make the ear a sacred oil. "'It shall be a holy anointing oil, and it says in verse 30 you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may be they may serve me as priests and that's in fact what happens in Leviticus is Moses anoints Aaron his brother as the first high priest then you have kings like I already mentioned to you kings are anointed in fact there was this one incident I don't know if you ever read about Saul when he was hunting David in the caves there's that one incident where Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. And David's in there with his men, and his men say to him, "David, David, God has given Saul into your hand. Kill him." And David says, "I can't I can't kill him. It's wrong for me to kill him. He's the Lord's anointed." And so he sneaks up, David sneaks up, and Saul's doing his business. And he cuts off just the edge of his robe, and then sneaks back into the cave, into the back. And then Saul finishes up, and he leaves the cave. And then David comes out, and he says, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Stop chasing me. (laughs) And repeatedly this happens in his life, that David will find Saul in a situation where he could kill him but he doesn't. He refuses because he knows that Saul has been anointed by God through Samuel the prophet. And as a result, it's God's business if he lives or dies, not his. I have a quote for you on this as well. This is from uh, N.T. Wright. This is what he says What the Messiah is. He says, the Hebrew word, literally anointed one, hints in theory, either a prophet, priest, or king. In Greek, this translates as Christos, Christ. In early Christianity, was a title and only gradually became an alternative proper name for Jesus. In practice, Messiah is mostly restricted to the notion which took various forms in ancient Judaism of the coming king who would be David's true heir, through him Yahweh would rescue Israel from pagan enemies. And so To be an anointed one is to be a Christ. It could either mean a prophet, a priest, or a king. But when it comes to Jesus, he's all three. Jesus is a prophet like unto Moses. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And most importantly, he is a king who will sit on the throne of David. So Jesus is the only one in the Bible that has a triple anointing like that. Melchizedek in Genesis had a double anointing because he was priest and king. So that's interesting. But when it comes to the Messiah, Messiahship of Jesus, there are a number of these prophecies. So I wanted to show you these prophecies here. These are Messianic prophecies about Jesus, or not necessarily about Jesus at the time. They're just prophecies about the Messiah to come. And these tell us what we should expect the Messiah to be like. And you'll, you'll hear about these in other classes you take, but I just want to mention a few of them, a few of the more um, significant ones. Genesis 49.10 has a prophecy that says the scepter, which is what, it's like the staff the king holds, the scepter will not depart from Judah. So you have 12 tribes, Judah is just one of those tribes. And what this prophecy says is that that, that scepter is going to be with Judah. Then in 1 Chronicles 17.11 to 14, I showed you before when we looked at the promise that God made to David that one of his sons would be God's son and he would rule upon the throne forever, the throne of David. Then in Psalm 2, we read a prophecy about how God's son would have the nations as his inheritance and the ends of the earth as his possession and he will break them to pieces like a clay jar. Then in Isaiah 11, we read a prophecy about a son of Jesse who will come forth and who will have the sixfold spirit of God upon him, the spirit of wisdom and knowledge and, and counsel and might and fear of the Lord and so on, and that this, this one would be an insightful and just ruler. He would have supernatural wisdom and that in his days the wolf would dwell with the lamb and the uh, lion and the uh, goat or something, lion and the goat. Lion and the the cow. and Then you have Jeremiah 23, which has a prophecy that God will raise up for David a righteous branch to reign as king. And then Zechariah 9, 9 9-10 talks about a king who comes on a donkey and cuts off weapons of war and rules from sea to sea. So we have a number of these what are called messianic prophecies, prophecies about the Messiah to come. And there are are several others as well, but these are some of the big ones. Nobody knows who the Messiah is until he's finally born. And then the only ones that know who he is are just Mary and Joseph. That's pretty much it. I mean, when he's born, it's not like there was an announcement put out in the paper. We read in Luke chapter 1, let's look at the birth of Jesus. These are verses you might have read or heard read during the holiday season, during Christmas time. Luke 1 31 says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name, you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob and of his kingdom there will be no end. So that's the original prophecy That the angel Gabriel gave to Mary about the son she would have is that he would be on the throne of David and that he would reign over the house of Jacob look if you're reigning over the house of Jacob you are a king king's reign once we start looking at the ministry of Jesus we find there are actually three terms that are used synonymously or interchangeably they are Son of God, Son of David, and King of Israel. Those three terms. These are three ways to say the same thing. And it's important to realize when the Bible's using different words to refer to the same thing. So, for example, Son of God, in Luke 4.41, Jesus rebuked the demons for saying, you are the Son of God, because they knew he was the Christ. So it's clear from Luke 4.41 that Son of God... And Christ are two interchangeable titles. Now that makes perfect sense if you think about it because the original promise that God made to David was that he will have a son and God will be a father to him, he will be a son to God, and he will give him the throne. So a Christ or a king is the same as the Son of God, at least in this in this case here. John 11:27. 27, Martha believes Jesus is, quote, the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. John 20, 31, the purpose of the Gospel of John is to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Matthew 26, 63 to 64, calls Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Son of Man all at once. Then the next category, other than Son of God, is Son of David, and Son of David is we see in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 23, this can't be the son of David, can it? And then Matthew 22, 42, whose son is the Christ? And they said, the son of David. And then last of all, you have the king of Israel, this term that Nathanael uses in John 1, 49. He says, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. In Matthew 27, 42 to 43, it says, if he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross. He said, I am the son of God. And so. What I'm telling you is that these three phrases, son of God, son of David, king of Israel, they are all used interchangeably to refer to the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. Okay, so these are all just different ways of saying the same thing. I'm not saying they're identical, but I'm saying that they are used interchangeably. Obviously, son of God and son of David have a slight difference between them, right? But they both refer to the Messiah or the Christ. Now, during his ministry, Jesus kept his messianic identity secret. He did, want, he did not want people to know that he thought he was the Messiah. He did not claim to be the Messiah. He did not go around saying, you must believe in me, the Messiah. Because to be a Messiah in their world was to be a threat to the Roman Empire. Why? Because the Roman Empire decides who's the king of the Jews. The Jews don't determine who's the king of the Jews. Uh, so in Matthew 3.11, and by Matthew I mean Mark 3.11, we read: Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, when they saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Now look, let's say you're casting spirits out, and the spirits are shouting, You are the The Son of God, you are the daughter of God." That sounds like good publicity, right? Now, for Jesus, it says in verse 12, He strictly ordered them not to make it known. Jesus doesn't want people to find out that He is the Son of God. He wants to keep that a secret. And this is what's known as the messianic secret. It is something that He keeps during His ministry, but then at a certain point, He goes public and he says, I am the Messiah, and then within a week he's dead. That's the triumphal entry. We'll get to that. The other place to look at is Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, where it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one, that he was the Christ. So Jesus asked his disciples, what do people say about me? What's the buzz on the street? What's the word? And they're like, well, some people think you're John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist was already dead. So presumably they thought he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. They think you're like a prophet. That's what people think about you. Then Jesus says, but what about you? What do you think about me? This is Peter's greatest moment in verse 16, right? You have the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, you see how the two are interchangeable? You have Christ and the Son of God right next to each other. And then Jesus compliments him. He's like, oh, you know, this is really great. I'm so happy that God revealed this to you. And then in verse 20, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. Isn't that fascinating? Have you ever noticed that before, that Jesus tells people not to tell? It's totally the opposite of what our way of doing it today is right because today it's all like tell people about jesus right isn't that what christian leadership is always saying go share your faith with others right in the time of jesus before uh it was it was time for these things to happen he said don't tell anybody obviously that changed we know of several other jewish movements and messianic movements says nt wright and prophetic movements during the one or two centuries either side of Jesus' public career. Routinely, they ended with the violent death of the central figure. In other words, if you claim to be the Christ, the Romans are gonna arrest you and execute you. And this is exactly what happened once Jesus did claim to be the Christ, and it happened to those who came before Jesus and those who came after Jesus, who likewise claimed to be the Christ or claimed to be a leader in Israel. Some suggest that Jesus didn't like the title Messiah because people might understand it in a political sense. And they say, oh, well, if Jesus used the term Christ, then people would think that he's claiming to be the king of Israel, he's claiming to be a king, a king as a political figure, and they're all going to have this baggage of assuming that he's going to kick the Romans out, and all this other sorts of, like, worldly concerns. And so they say, well, that's why Jesus didn't like to use the term Messiah. The Bible never says that. The Bible never says Jesus didn't like to use the term Messiah. It says that he, he ordered them not to tell others. But when, when Peter said, you're the Christ, Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but my Father in heaven. So Jesus isn't against the term Messiah. He's waiting until the time is right to be revealed as the Messiah. Besides, if you look at all those Old Testament prophecies, they talk about a king, a political ruler, who is gonna defeat all of the other nations and bring them into submission under the kingdom of God. So I don't think we need to depoliticize the term Messiah and make it some sort of like religious term. Messiah, and and also in in their world, you don't have a separation of church and state, right? So you can, like Messiah is at once God's king. So it's, it's religious and political all at the same time. What was Jesus' favorite title for himself? What did he call himself? If he didn't go around calling himself the Messiah, what did he go around calling himself? Son of man, yeah. Son of man is a really interesting phrase. Son of man can have two possible meanings. So if Jesus called himself any of these things here, everyone would immediately know what he's talking about and he would be in trouble with the government. Son of man, however, really can just mean a human being. But it can also mean the one from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. So there are two possible meanings of son of man. Now I'll show you just a couple of verses where the term son of man shows up. This is Numbers 23 19. It says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Now the way Hebrew poetry works is they employ synonymous parallelism. So that's another way to say that they say the same thing twice. And in line one, we read God is not man. And then in line two, or sorry, God is not man that he should lie. And then a line two, or a son of man that he should change his mind. So the way to read parallel statements like this is to say, man is in parallel with son of man and lie is in parallel with change his mind. Do you see how that works? It's all over the Psalms. It's all over the prophets. It's a standard Hebrew way of equating. It's, It's a good way to equate different terms together and see what the um, writer thinks is the same in their own mind. This is Job 16:21 that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. You can see that son of man just means a human being. Psalm 8, 4, What is man that you are mindful of him? That's line one. Line two, And the son of man that you care for him? Once again, man is in parallel with son of man, and mindful is in, parable, in parallel with care. Uh, it shows up a lot in Ezekiel, probably more than anywhere else. Actually, I can show you. I can show you that definitively. So that bar on the top there is Ezekiel. You probably can't read it unless you're in the front row. But it says 93 usages occur in Ezekiel. It's more than twice as much as any other book. Even more than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Ezekiel has more than any one of those books. And that's because just in the book of Ezekiel, God's always talking to Ezekiel and God always calls Ezekiel son of man. In other words, human being. So, for example, in Ezekiel 2:1, it says, "And he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you." Or verse 3, he said to me, "Son of man, I will send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. Or verse 6, And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. So anyhow, anyhow, what I'm just saying to you is that son of man just means a human being. It's just a humble way to call yourself or to refer to yourself. Or it means the one from Daniel 7. Let's take a look at that. Daniel 7, 13. This is the son of man. Okay, all the other places would be various Son of Man references, but this is the Son of Man reference, even though it says a Son of Man in the text. <laughs> but this is like, this is the one that's a big deal. I had read this, this to you uh, earlier. This is what the, the vision of Daniel says. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom one which will not be destroyed. So, what we see here is a human being, a son of man. The vision works like this there are all these beasts that Daniel sees come out of the sea. He sees a lion, a bear a leopard, and then just some freaky beast. He just calls it a terrifying beast. And then after all these beasts, which represent kingdoms, he sees a human being. And that human being represents this new kingdom that is to come and is gonna destroy all the other kingdoms. And he calls that human, in in the vision, a son of man. And this son of man comes to the Ancient of Days and he receives dominion, glory, and a kingdom. So look, son of man, could equally mean a human being or the one who's going to rule the world on God's behalf forever. You know what I mean? It's a brilliant term. It's it's the perfect term because now the hearer decides what he or she believes about Jesus. Jesus isn't going around saying, I'm the Messiah, believe in me. Is that what Jesus does? No, He he says, I am the Son of Man. And people are like, oh, he's a humble guy. He seems like a nice guy. And other people are like, wait, when you say son of man, are you talking about that son of man? Right? And that's, that's the debate of what's going on. However, in Jesus' ministry, the moment when all doubts are assuaged and all clarity comes to light is when he enters into Jerusalem on that donkey in the triumphal entry. It's it's hard for me to overstate how important the triumphal entry is in his own self-messianic advertisement, okay? And so the triumphal entry into Jerusalem is his great moment when Jesus comes out publicly as the Messiah. And what what we see is that he intentionally, prophetically enacts the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9. In Zechariah 9, it says that the king comes humbly on a donkey. And he's going to speak peace to the nations. And so, Jesus, and it's not like Jesus just like rides a donkey into Jerusalem, all right? There's a parade. There's a whole group of people. And they're shouting out. And they... They're taking uh, palm branches down, and they're taking their clothes and putting it, and they're making this roadway for Jesus to enter into the city, and they're shouting, and they're saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna to the King of Israel. Let me show you these verses here. There are four Gospels, right? So we have four, four accounts of this triumphal entry. Sometimes it's really helpful to not just stick with one gospel, but to look and compare multiple gospels to get more of a full panoramic vision of the situation, a more of a three-dimensional picture than a two-dimensional picture. So the first one there is Mark 11:9, And we read where it says, And those who went before him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes! In the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And so here we have reference to the coming kingdom of our father David. And then in Matthew 21, 9, it says, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. So slightly different. But now it says, Son of David. That was one of our messianic titles. I mean, Mark is not at all shy here. He he just straight out says, the kingdom of our father David. Here it's a little more subtle. Son of David. Right? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And You see, when Jesus gets into Jerusalem, everyone's like, who in the world is this? Right? Verse 10 there. Who is this? Verse 11. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. <laughs> uh, take a look at Luke 19, 38, where it says, Blessed is the king. I mean, flat out just calls him a king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And the Pharisees get all mad. They're like, Jesus, you need to rebuke these people. They're calling you the king. And Jesus is like, I ain't rebuking nobody. Right? If these guys are silent, the stones will cry out. And then we have John... Twelve, thirteen, which says, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Hosanna! Well, actually two Hosanna songs now, right? And they're both overplayed. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written from Zechariah that he would be sitting on a donkey's colt and so on. But it says here, Hosanna, blessed is he comes in, even the king of Israel. See, there it is. King of Israel, son of David, coming kingdom of our father David. The triumphal em- entry is this moment where Jesus announces to everyone, I am the Messiah. And then on top of that, you know what he does after this? After he enters into Jerusalem, he goes into the temple, and he starts flipping tables over. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like if, if, if he just started like knocking chairs over and flipping tables, right? It would really get your attention, wouldn't it? And you have all these uh, animals in the, in the temple courtyards, and what's, what's Jesus doing? He's got a whip, and he's just, get out of here, and he's, and he's causing a ruckus, and there's money on the table, and it's going flying everywhere. And they say to him, who gives you the authority to do this? He say, when they ask him that question, he says, I'll answer your question if you answer my question. John's baptism, from heaven or from men? And they say, well, give us a minute. So they, they kind of like gather up and they, and they say, well, if we say it's from heaven, then he's going to say, well, why didn't you get baptized by John? And if we say it's from men, then we fear the people because they all believe that John was a prophet. So let's say we don't know. So they go back to him and they're like, Jesus, we don't know where John's baptism came from. And Jesus is like, well, if you're not going to answer my question, I'm not going to answer your question. And he totally avoids answering the question by what authority do you do this? After that, I mean, it's go time. Jesus is in constant conflict with not only the Pharisees, which was like pretty typical, but also now the Sadducees. And the Sadducees have the power of the full government behind them because the lead Sadducee is the high priest and he's in charge of the temple police and he's also the one who is in conversation with the Roman governor. In this case would be Pilate. And Pilate is the only one that can authorize executions. So once Jesus starts messing with the Sadducees, it's just a matter of time during that week until they capture him. What else do I want to say about Jesus being the Messiah? There's this other term that shows up a lot. And there are a few dimensions of it, and I just want to let you know about it. But it's Lord, okay? And there are at least four meanings here. It can mean Sir. If you call somebody Lord, it could just be like a polite... It would be like Mr. or Sir. It could also mean uh, Master. In other words, the one that you obey. It can also mean ruler, and then specifically in their world it meant Caesar. Caesar is Lord. The Roman uh, Emperor. And then, uh, of course, God is called Lord, right? And people are called Lord, right? Both because God is is a master and a ruler, right? So, but also humans in their culture would be called Lord as well. And so this lower title is something we see with Jesus a lot. Let me just show you a few of these. First Samuel go ahead and write that down. First Samuel 25 is where Abigail came to David and was bowing before him and trying to convince him not to kill all of her people. <laughs> and uh, in First Samuel 25, we read in verse. 24 it says she fell at his feet now this is david this is not jesus this is not god this is david she fell at his feet and said on me alone my lord be the guilt please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant let not my lord regard this worthless fellow nabal for as his name is so is he nabal is his name and folly is with him but i your servant did not see the young men of my lord whom you sent now then My Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. Look at all the my Lords there. Abigail is going on and on and on, calling David my Lord over and over and over again. David is not her master. She's not a slave. Uh, David's not a king yet. Why does she keep calling him my Lord over and over and over again? To express as much politeness as possible because David has just decided he's going to wipe out her husband and her entire household because of how he's been treated. And so if you call somebody my lord or lord, it could just mean sir or like you ever get in trouble with the police and you're supposed to say officer, right? If you don't say officer, then they get mad at you. You ever notice that? Or if you're in a court, if any of you ever been in court, you're supposed to say your honor. You don't say, sir, you say your honor, right? And if you don't use the proper term, they'll put you in jail. They'll hold you in contempt of court. That's this first definition of Lord. And then as far as master goes, we have this verse, Luke 6:46, which is very important. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Jesus says, if you're going to call me Lord, you have to do what I say. Because by definition, the word Lord, at least as he's using it here, is that he is a master. He is the one who is in charge. He's the boss. He is the one with the authority that we need to obey. Then the third one there is that Jesus is the cosmic ruler, the rightful ruler. We see this very well in Acts 2.36 in particular, where it says, Let all the house of Israel know that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Right? And so this is a verse that comes to us after the resurrection, after the ascension, and on the day of Pentecost, which is 40 days later, 50 days later. And what it says is that God has made him Lord and Christ. Well, Jesus is already saying he's Lord before that, but now he's made Lord. So this is talking about made as the ruler. Another place uh, is Philippians 2, 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. That's why I say cosmic ruler, not just ruler, because Jesus, God, is, God has put Jesus at a level of authority and power that it says like he's on his right hand and so that means he's above uh, the heavenly and the earthly authority so that at the name of jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that jesus christ is what lord to the glory of god the father right and so he's not he's not above god the father he's he's put in the highest position and then As people recognize Jesus for who he is, that actually gives glory to God the Father. They're not in competition at all. And then in their culture, in their political system, the Roman Caesar was called Lord, and interestingly enough, also called Son of God, and called a number of other terms that like Savior of the world, different terms that we think of as being religious terms, their political leader was called. And so Christians ended up getting into a lot of trouble, especially in the late 1st century, early 2nd century, and 3rd century, especially in the 3rd century, where Christians would not call Caesar Lord. They just refused. And the government would catch catch our people, and he, they would... Sometimes even torture us and say, confess that Caesar is Lord, and we wouldn't be able to do it. We would say, well, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And Jesus is, is, is my king, and Jesus is the one who is God's anointed one and God's uh, established ruler. You know, Caesar, I'll respect, and Christians, we, we weren't disrespectful. I'll we'll respect him, I'll pay him honor, I'll obey the law, I'll pay the taxes, but I'm not going to call him Lord, and I'm not going to offer a pinch of incense to his image, and I'm not going to offer sacrifice. And they slaughtered us for that. Christians were persecuted severely at different times during that period because Caesar was called Lord, and we couldn't go along with that. Throughout his ministry, Jesus did a lot of kingdom stuff. He called 12 apostles. He healed people. He cast out demons. Uh, He preached the gospel of the kingdom. He told parables about the kingdom. He would go to dinner parties that would foreshadow the messianic banquet with the patriarchs. In other words, I would say you can't even understand Jesus without understanding the kingdom of God and the fact that all of these terms right here, whether we're talking about anointed one, Messiah, Christ, King, Son of God, Son of David— all of these terms right here, what they really mean is that Jesus is the one that God has appointed to be in charge of the world in the future. I mean, if that's your destiny, I think you would think about it a lot. I mean, there, there are some people that are born into royalty, and they have to wait until their parents die, but then they're going to become the king or the queen, right? Or the prince, we have princes and princesses in, in the world, right? If that's your destiny, that's what you think about not that you want your parents to die, but like, hey, when I'm in charge, I'm going to do it like this. Jesus is destined to be the ruler or the king of the kingdom of God. And so, it comes out in a million different ways. But one of the most interesting ways and powerful ways is that his crucifixion. Because from the perspective of the Roman government, Jesus, first of all, Jesus was handed over To the Roman government by the Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin specifically. The Sanhedrin included Sadducees and Pharisees. And so the Sanhedrin, which is the council, the Jewish council, handed over Jesus to Pilate and said, we want you to execute him. And Pilate says, what What crime has he committed? So if he wasn't guilty, we wouldn't have brought him to you. And Pilate's like, all right, I'll question him. And Pilate takes him inside, and he questions him. He's like, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus is, like, talking to him. He's like, well, you you said it. And he's like, but my kingdom's not from this world. If it were, my servants would be fighting. But for now, it's not from from here. And Pilate Pilate comes out. He's like, this guy's no problem. I'm going to release him. And then they say something really interesting. At a critical moment in that trial... At a critical moment, it says in John 19.12, From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So they use that political sense of Caesar and the Roman right to, to decide who the king is. Against Pilate and said, look, if you don't execute this guy, we're going to go tell Caesar that you're letting people who claim to be king go. And that's that's when Pilate has his turning point, right? Because it says that, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in the place called the stone pavement in Aramaic Gabatha. Now it was a day of the preparation, and so, and so on. And he said to the king, Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. And he has Jesus there. And they cry to him, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Whew. So this political stuff played an, an important role in the crucifixion the trial and crucifixion of jesus that was the leverage they used against pilate to get him to execute jesus so and at at this point pilate is outmaneuvered and he knows it and says he delivered him over to be crucified his hands are tied he's like i can't i can't get out of this without getting in serious trouble with caesar so i'm going to crucify him not that Pilate was a nice guy by the way Outside the New Testament, we know a lot about Pilate from Josephus and other sources. He was a total jerk. Uh, but in this case, he just didn't happen to want to execute someone for the sake of other people who were jealous. You know what I mean? He didn't want to, be, he didn't want to get manipulated or played in this situation. Uh, sometimes as Christians, we, we turn Pilate into like this saint, like he was this great guy. He was just stubborn. And he didn't want to do what they wanted him to do. <laughs> I don't think he was a great guy. And he, and he had a lot of blood in his hands. He, he's done a lot of bad things. Do you know what a titulus is? That's that sign on the top here. It looks like the English word for title, titulus. It's a Roman uh, sign. That was the accusation above Jesus when he was on the cross. This is, uh, obviously it doesn't survive to this day. We don't actually have the sign, but this is a reconstruction of what it might've looked like. And you can see that in the top row, we have what appear to be English letters, they're actually Latin letters. In the second row, I'm betting you don't recognize, recognize those letters, those are Greek letters. And then in the third row, it starts to, get, starts to look really weird, right? Those are Hebrew letters, okay? And so, uh, right at the top, can you read it? it says Jesus, Nazarenus, Rex, Eudaorum. Anybody wanna translate that for me? Into English? The first word's easy, right? Jesus, okay. Nazarene. Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarene. Rex, what do you think that means? Anybody ever heard of Rex Cain? Mm-hmm. What does Rex mean? T-Rex, Tyrannosaurus Rex? Rex means king, it's just a Latin word for king. Um, which means that Rex Cain really means King-King. <laughs> and then Judeorum uh, is Jews, of the Jews. It's a so Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. That's what it said. Now why would they write it in Latin? What do you think? it Rome? Rome. Yeah. Latin was the government language. Okay? So if any official government document or sign is gonna be in Latin. Most people in the Roman Empire spoke Greek, so they put a second line there. A little more difficult to read. Jesus, O oh, Nazareus, O oh, Basilevs, Ton, You, they own. Okay, it says the same thing. And then we get to Hebrew. Why would they put it in Hebrew? Because that's what everybody in Jerusalem, that was their native tongue. So this is the language of the empire, the official documents. This is the language that most people could read in general. But since they're in Jerusalem, they're like, we want these, these local Jews to be able to read this. And so that says Yeshua, right there. Nazareth, It doesn't look like a T. It, says, it looks like it says Nazareth something like that. And then this is uh, Melech. That means king. And then that's the word for Jews. Yehu, uh, Yehuda or something like that. I don't know if that's an M or what that is. But anyhow, my point is you have this sign. What is the sign saying? The sign is saying his accusation. He's a criminal being executed. The sign tells everyone this is his crime. What is his crime, ladies and gentlemen? His crime is that he says he's the king of the Jews. That's his crime. From a Roman perspective, why do they kill Jesus? Because Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews. That's why they killed him. Simple as that. And they put it in three languages so that everybody would know this guy thinks he's the king, but obviously he's not because we're killing him. That's what the Romans think they're doing. So even in the crucifixion of Jesus, the fact that he is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, Son of David, King of Israel, is extremely relevant. In fact, it's the reason the Romans think they're killing him. The the point of killing competing kings was to convey the Roman statement Don't mess with Caesar. Don't mess with the power of Rome. If you mess with the power of Rome, that's going to happen to you. This was a normal procedure. It's not like Jesus was the only one crucified by the Romans, or even that day. We know that other people were crucified with Jesus for various other reasons, but this was something that the Romans did. It it was the opposite of capital punishment. Capital punishment in our society Uh, It's usually by lethal injection these days, right? And it's something that is very much a private affair. What would you think if they did an execution in downtown Atlanta and they had the criminal tied to a chair and they made like a big event out of it and people are tailgating and grilling food up and they're like yeah i I bet he lasts five seconds and then you got another guy only gonna last 10 seconds and then another guy's like oh he's gonna be out after two and like people are all into it and like watching the execution this is so foreign to our culture but that was normal in the roman empire where people would go to watch the execution you think about the scene imagine in your mind you have jesus you have the other thieves right but there's all these other people there And they're wagging their heads. If you're the Messiah, why don't you come down from there? They're not friendly people. If you're really the Son of God, why don't you come down from there? I mean, his mother's there and a few of the women, right? And we know that John was there. So there's a a tiny little group there of, of people that actually love Jesus. But the majority of the people are there just like wagging their heads and going on about how this guy's a fake. So... When Jesus gets crucified, it's absolutely devastating to all of his followers. They don't think to themselves, oh, thank God he paid for the sins of the world. They don't don't say that. I mean, eventually they come to understand that, but in the moment, they're just like, he's not the Messiah. You know why he's not the Messiah? Because he's dead. A dead Messiah is useless. (laughs) You want the Messiah to be alive, or else, what good is he? And that's when we get to the resurrection. The resurrection, so the crucifixion proves that Jesus is not the Messiah. His whole ministry, he goes around saying, don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah, don't tell anybody he's the Messiah. Then he gets to the triumphal entry, and in the triumphal entry, he says, I'm the Messiah! And then he's crucified, and the point of the crucifixion is to tell everyone Jesus is not the Messiah. So, how are we going to get out of this one? Resurrection. Resurrection tells us that Jesus is the Messiah. So the crucifixion, in the moment when it happened, told everyone in the city, Jesus is definitely not the Messiah. But then when God raises him from the dead, it, it undoes it. It un- undoes everything. When God raises Jesus from the dead, it says, look, he is the Messiah, And because I, I say so. And if God says so, it's so. Let's face it. So the Romans are saying, he's not the Messiah, we killed him. God's saying, I don't think so. He is the Messiah, and I raised him. And that's why we get these kinds of incidents like we read at the end of Luke 24. So there's these two guys, and they're going home. These are the two guys on the road to Emmaus. And it even gives the name of one of them, Cleopas. We don't have too many kids named Cleopas these days. Anyhow, then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days. So Jesus is talking to Cleopas and his friend as they're walking away from Jerusalem because they are going home. And Jesus says to them, hey guys, what's going on? And, and they're like, first of all, how do you not know what's going on? Are you a stranger to Jerusalem? And then Jesus says, what things? And they said, duh, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And then this is the key part I want to zoom in on here. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides, this is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us they were at the tomb early in the morning, but they did not find his body. They came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't, him they did not see. So these guys are saying, look, we hoped, we hoped, we, we believed in him. We thought he would be the one. We hoped that he would redeem Israel. Where does it say that? Right here, 21. This is Luke 24:21. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But guess what? We're going home. Because he didn't redeem Israel, and he's dead. And these women are crazy. That's what these guys think. And then Jesus rebukes them. He's like... You guys are so slow to believe all that the prophecies, of scripture said. And then Jesus reveals himself to them. And then just in that moment, he vanishes out of their sight. And they run back home to Jerusalem. And when they get to Jerusalem, they say, we've seen the Lord. And everyone's like, yeah, so-and-so saw him too. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up in the midst of them there. And they come to believe. And so this event, the resurrection, totally... Undermines that Roman publicity stunt with the crucifixion by showing that, according to God, Jesus is the Messiah. And the resurrection of Jesus is the definitive proof the Bible gives us that Jesus is the Messiah. Take a look at Romans 1. Just wrapping things up here. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of god in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead jesus christ our lord according to the apostle paul the reason why we know that jesus is the son of god is by the resurrection from the dead that's romans 1 verse 4 then we have one last scripture acts 17:30 which says The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus is God's assurance that he is the one appointed to judge the living and the dead, to judge the whole world. Okay, so that's just a little bit about Jesus, the Messiah. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. Just to let you know, the Theological Conference is going on right now, and tomorrow I'll be presenting on the subject, the Trinity before Nicaea, delving into church history. So if you would like to tune in to that, you can get information at theologicalconference.org. And I'm scheduled to go at 2.15. And you could tune in on YouTube. Just go to theologicalconference.org, and there's a tab on the top called Streaming. There's also a whole bunch of other great speakers lined up for this weekend. So if you are listening to this on Thursday night or Friday morning, uh, why not stop by and tune in and see what's going on at TheoCon? Uh, But otherwise, uh, we'll record everything and hopefully be able to put some stuff out here on Studio in the future. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.